I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're curious. We never want to stop learning about the world we live in. We want to discuss, we want to challenge popular conceptions, we want to think critically, examine independently, and most of all, we crave nuance. Each episode, we'll interview a different guest, all interesting and original people who strive to break boundaries. We'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, sports, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? We want to create a platform where people share with us their stories, insights, creations, and visions. We want to challenge those seemingly stuck in binary, zero-sum, all-or-nothing mindsets to create a space where people are free to question, discuss, and reach their own conclusions. We have no talking points, no script, and no agenda. We only want to reach a deeper, nuanced understanding of our existence. Join us on our journey as we explore, think, debate, discuss, and perhaps most importantly, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but, but with a J for Jewish? Yeah, yeah, they get it, man. Let's just start. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Juanced. I am Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Fefferman. And uh, we are coming to you live from our studio in Rehovot, Israel. And uh, we have the pleasure and the honor of, uh, of having as our guest today uh, Rabbi Chase Rishon, who goes by the pen name Manishtana. How you and- doing, Chase? Hey, everybody. What's going on? Good times, good times. So before before we get this before we get this going, we just wanted to say before anything else, it was important for us to have this conversation uh, at this time, especially because you know, as two Jews who grew up in the states, you know, we're watching along with the rest of the world, uh, but from afar, the events that are transpiring in the United States today, and like everybody else, we're hopeful uh, and concerned about what we're seeing. And we have a kind of a distance from it being here in Israel, but we're also very, very close to what's going on because of our families being there. And apart from everything else, we're concerned about our country and we're, we're probably most importantly really concerned about what's going on um, with our uh, you know, brothers and sisters of color in the States and around the world, but, but particularly uh, where we grew up. So uh, you know, we wanted to have a, a dialogue with you, a discussion with you, and kind of learn more about what's going on. But before we do that, uh, you know, introduce you to our audience. Chase is one of a growing cadre of incredibly talented Jewish leaders of color. We pulled that from your website. This is totally your bio from the website, by the way. But that, that's cool. Uh, Copy. Very professional. Uh, he is an author, writer, educator, playwright, rabbi, and public speaker whose work on racial and religious identity and culture and how their intersections manifest in America takes prejudice, bias, and ignorance head on, asking the questions about humanity, race, religion, and social injustice that we all have and are maybe afraid to talk about with gut punching insight and gut busting sarcasm. A lot of sarcasm, if anybody knows Chase. <laughs> A New York, attacked. yeah, a New York-based African American Orthodox Jew born from two African American Orthodox Jewish parents, Manishtana grew up in the Chabad Lubavitch movement and hails on his mother's side from a legacy of African American Judaism stretching into the 1780s. So we're going to want to hear about that. Holy crap, that's old. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we'll just wow. mention uh, Chase has appeared as a featured speaker in a number of uh, conferences around the U.S. and around the world. 
um, and is uh, consistently listed as uh, one of top 10, 20, you name it, influential young people, influential Jews, influential leaders, influential rabbis. We highly recommend booking him as a speaker, which in this day and age takes the shape of uh, Zoom and other online platforms, but as soon as that's over, also in person. I personally had the pleasure of meeting Chase exactly this time last year. Uh, We both appeared at a Limud Sydney, Australia conference and uh, into the the Friday night Shabbat service walks uh, a... Black man, that didn't surprise me as much, but he was wearing a, I, I remember this suit. It was a floral printed three-piece suit. Wait, like like this floral printed? Like my Hawaiian shirt kind of? It, it was kind of reminiscent of uh, Dwayne Johnson on Ballers, uh, floral printed. That's I, awesome. I was immediately envious. I am often the best dressed person in any room. Uh, not on that trip. I took very few clothes with me. But in walked someone who clearly had uh, one leg up on me. Uh, and I can say from the few times I've been around him and the more times I've seen him, he is always the best dressed person in any room. And for those of you watching the video of this, uh, you can't help but agree with this. And, and I and I think I remember how you introduced yourself. And I think this would be a great way to open. Uh, Chase, how are you Jewish? Fine, thanks. How are you, Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> so we would love to hear, we would love to start oh, wow. about... Chase, we would love to hear about your uh, story. Let's start with your story, your very unique story, uh, your existence. Take us through it. Oh, oh, oh um, when a man and woman love each other very much. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was the stork. It's not a stork. Birds and bees, man. Birds and bees. Oh, God, I was lied to. Uh, so you grew up, well, you grew up um, in Brooklyn, is I that right? Grew up, yeah, I did. I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in and around Crown, Crown Heights before, during, and after the riots. A uh, huge, huge fun time, the Crown Heights riot. Um, so for those of our listeners joke. who might not know what that means, uh, take them through it, because I have a feeling a lot of our, ah, really, a lot of our younger right. listeners aren't going to remember or know it, at all what that is. Before they were born, whippersnappers nowadays. We're old now, man. Uh, don't you know? The Crown Heights, it's weird. So weird. I don't understand. So the Crown Heights riot, 1991, but, uh, actually it was about this time, it was in August. August 1991, it's about three days of the racial tensions that existed and still exist in Crown Heights between the sort of Chabad community and the African, well, Caribbean American community, really, uh, sort of exploded into this powder keg of three days of rioting, violence, a few stabbings that was sort of uh, kicked into gear sort of accidentally, but really sort of put a magnifying glass on the tensions that existed there in Crown Heights. So that was a hugely fun time. Uh, we like to joke sometimes in my family that the riots sort of ended when people would run into us and they weren't exactly sure which side we were going to be on. So <laughs> <laughs> just less confusing that way. <laughs> Wait, are we supposed to kick you or hug you, right? Um, that <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, like, what do we do? I don't know. This is too hard. All right. Abort. Abort mission. <laughs> So, so you grew up, uh, you grew up um, in the eighties and nineties in Brooklyn as an African American Hasidic Orthodox Jew. How, how did that happen? Um, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people always ask uh, you, um, you know, when did you convert or how did you become Jewish? But your story is a lot more complex than that. Um, so, so take us back. You've got a unique uh, yeah, Jewish origin I, uh, story in that regard. 
so we ended up being Chabad uh, because uh, when my dad converted, he did it sort of through Chabad influences and things like that. Uh, Rabbi J.J. Hess was a, like a good family friend of ours or next door neighbors. Uh, his brother, Rabbi Karatek, was our landlord. So uh, we used to go to Rabbi Hatshul that he had in East Lapwish, like in the years just before uh, he died and closed down eventually. So that's how um, I ended up Chabad. Um, but did I go to Yeshiva? No, because Yeshiva in the 80s would be a horrible place for an African-American child to be. And so I went to public school the entire time for my entire educational career. Why, why was Yeshiva um, an awful an awful place for an African-American child to be? Um, racially horrific. <laughs> um, uh, I have friends who, who went to Yeshiva, and they have stories of how they would uh, steal change from their parents to pay their classmates to be their friend for the day, or when their fellow students finally did you know, talk to them, include them in games, it was with the nickname of Monkey. Um, so with all that sort of background, when the Crown Heights riot actually happened, I wasn't particularly surprised about it, just knowing the things that I went through in my interactions with the Chabad uh, side of Crown Heights. And I was part of sort of the in-crowd, right? I was, I was Jewish too, so I, I don't even actually have to imagine what, you know, non-Jewish Caribbean Americans were experiencing in their interaction. And to a certain extent, that still continues today, and I would say to an even worse extent, because since the riots, there's sort of this performative uh, thing that happens every year where everybody comes, you know, to this event. So this is a commemoration of the Crown Heights riots. Now look, we're all friends. We pat each other on the back, and then we go back home to our separate corners. So now there's this sort of band-aid that, that exists now that didn't exist before the riots, where I feel before you, you could have had a, a more raw or honest conversation about the tensions that were happening there. Um, and I think uh, part of what was missing then and is still missing now is that uh, Jews of color, particularly African-American or Caribbean-American Jews, are sort of left out of those conversations. There's a lot of sort of dialogue or talk around black Jewish community relations, you know, you know, black Jewish lines and things like that. And that phrase comes with two invisible parentheticals because what it's actually saying are white Jewish, non-Jewish black community relations. It's not discussing Jewish black, non-Jewish black community relations. It's not discussing white Jewish, black Jewish community relations. And unless you have all the pieces of that puzzle, you're never going to be able to create the full puzzle. And it's just people talking past each other or assuming things about each other that they're never going to sort of latch on or understand or better comprehend. That was a bit of my Crown Heights experience it's, it's just, uh, in a nutshell. First off, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an incredible story to hear that, but it's, it's, it's also quite interesting in that, you know, your friends that did go to yeshiva, thinking about it, just they were coming home from yeshiva, they're going to, you know, celebrate Shabbat at the, at the show with the same families and the same people that they're in yeshiva with. And it's like, there's one dynamic that's happening at, at the yeshiva, and is, is there another dynamic when you're gathering together as a community, as, as a Chabad community, to, to mark, you know, Shabbat or, or Chagim or things like that? Or, or is it always kind of this feeling of, like, we're in this movement, but the movement's not accepting us, but we want it to be better and we want it to, you know, grow or something like that? Or, you know, how, how did that feel in that way? Um, because boys will be boys at, at yeshiva, maybe, but, like, they come home and now you have their families are there and, and it's like... 
was that the all-encompassing feeling on that level? It wouldn't be too much of a, it wasn't really too much of a different dynamic. It was maybe slightly uh, different in show on maybe the men's side of the pizza because, you know, we need, you know, nine other guys that would, like, shove this into the corner. But in many cases, there would still be that sort of tension or where Aliot would go around the room a lot more frequently than it would, you know, uh, for us or, you know, uh, uh, getting to Dan for the Amu go around a lot more frequently than, than it would for us. Um, uh, on the women's side, it's an entire different sort of thing because women don't need each other. So they can just let everything fly in the same way, the same dynamic in, in Shul and in the street. Uh, there was, <laughs> this is horrible, but just to sort of paint a picture, there was always this strange dynamic when people would laugh it up with you to whatever extent in shul, like have the times with you. But then you see them outside of shul during the rest of the week and they just look straight through you as if they've never oh. seen you before. Oh. Or, or they all of a sudden they need to check their, their watch for a time that isn't there. There's nothing on their wrist. Or they get really invested in what does what the street sign say? Is that, uh, is, that that the, is that the 1980s <laughs> version of, oh, I've got a call to take here? Is that the, right, the pre-cell phone version of that? A lot of our listeners here might not be aware of, of, of the presence uh, of black Jews in America. Can you tell us about that? Uh, how big is the community? Uh, how many other people were in your specific community? And, and more broadly, um, I know there's some studies that have come out recently that are trying to debate um, how many black Jews are in America and more broadly Jews of color, which is a much more amorphous term, um, which can sometimes include Mizrahi Jews, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, take, take us through that as much as, um, as much as you're familiar with it. Uh, so about 10 to 15 percent of the American Jewish population are Jews of color. How much of that percentage are specifically African-American or Caribbean-American Jews? Those numbers haven't really existed. I mean, haven't really been tabulated because Jews of color in America have been historically uh, undercounted and underrepresented when it comes to these kinds of surveys. Um, whether you're going off lists or areas where Jews live, that's only a certain kind of Jew or a certain kind of name. Right. And so you're, you're not getting all the different areas where there might be Jews or the different names that might be Jews, etc. When it comes to African-American Jews, we've been documented being here a fairly long time. Um, the I think the first documented African American Jew was in the late 1600s. His name was Solomon. It was a <laughs> arrest record actually, it's, uh, called a mulatto Jew. Um, what reason he was being arrested for is not necessarily documented. I haven't been able to find that documentation. Then you find uh, years later a constitution written around barring Jews of color from a synagogue by Congregation Kahalo Kadosh in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, that's right. 1820, rule number 20 of its constitution states that uh, it accepts any new member or any proselyte, uh, provided that they have a letter from their previous rabbi or congregation, and provided that he sure they are not people of color. That's explicitly stated in Uh, That's fascinating. We'll get that up as a show note. Uh, If you can find that document, um, you've mentioned that to me before also, and we can get that up on the show notes of the website. Definitely. Um, And I can get it to you. Uh, There's also the the Charter of Shire Chesed in New Orleans, 1828, where as part of the charter, it's stated as a congregation for the white Israelites of the city, which it seems weird to, why separate white Israelites out if if there aren't other kinds of Israelites? Right. You know, in the city. 
so we've always been a presence uh, in this country for you know almost as long as it's been around. And if you go back that far in the past towards the origins of black Jews in the United States, is it known were those people Jewish when they came over from from the Caribbean or from Africa as slaves, or did they convert in the United States? Are there people that, I mean, I, I know that Dan has mentioned to me that your mom's side, and in, in your bio I think it mentioned as well, your, your mom's side of the family goes back to you know, a Jewish identity from Nigeria, which is completely... No, un- Nigeria. It was sort of a speculation. <laughs> okay. Yeah, take a, take a but second. I don't think mo- but, most I mean, listeners would be even familiar with, with that as a part of the Jewish story. Right. Um, so it's a combination of all of those. People that came over that were originally Jewish, people that converted, people of mixed racial heritage, so it's pretty much how Jews started. Right. <laughs> Interesting. So, so so the the story, you know, you're kind of half of your family story, you're saying is really not, I mean, to us, it's it's incredibly uh, interesting and new. Uh, I think to a lot of our listeners, it's going to be incredibly interesting to you to, and new, but you're saying this really goes back to the very beginnings of America. There have always been, uh, you know, black, uh, African-American or Caribbean-American Jews uh, in, as part of the American Jewish story. Yeah, uh, especially if you're talking about the Caribbean, the amount of Sephardi and Dutch Jews that were there right. and married into, you know, the people that were already there. Uh, I, you can't throw, I can't throw a rock uh, amongst any of my Jamaican friends without hitting half that at least have some Jewish ancestry or another half that aren't technically halakhically actually Jewish wow. <laughs> um, from generations what's, back. What's the history of your mom's side? Our earliest ancestress here was born here, uh, 1780s, born Jewish. Where her family is from, we don't know. Uh, we assume maybe Nigeria. That seems uh, a logical guess. Uh, the largest ethnic group of Africans brought uh, to the Americas during the transatlantic slave trade were Nigerian. Uh, the Igbo among Nigerian are the largest ethnic group that were brought to America. Among the Igbo, there are uh, Jewish tribes. But upon doing my uh, 23andMe, I discovered that Nigerian ancestry didn't enter our pool until the mid-1800s. Interesting. An entire pretty much century after we'd already been here. So from where? I'm not sure. There seems to be a, a little bit more north, uh, northeastern sort of background DNA, according to the study there. So my guess is as good as yours at this point. So maybe your uh, Sephardi origins. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, as, as someone who's uh, half Sephardi, I can say the food's a lot better, so you might as well just join us. It's absolutely better. <laughs> I got to understand. Wait, wait, was Ashkenazi, like... Were you guys absent the day they gave out spices? Like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, but this this is actually an interesting an interesting foray into something for a second. The black the black Jewish community in North America, going back as far as it goes back, and and many of them not having you know origins that are tied to the experiences of of, of Ashkenazi Jewry, uh, is is there its own nusach? Is there, you know, its own sort of, or, or, or do people sort of go with, you know, what is the majority of the community that they're a part of? How, how does that work? Well, I Benny, I don't know if you're aware of this. I know you are, uh, Chase. The origins of the the first American Jews were actually Sephardi, they were right? Ashkenazi. That's right. Um, but you know, I know from our conversations, and maybe you'd like to to fill us in more on this. From what you've told me, is the Black Jews didn't really have a place to fit in 
within the American Jewish community really until when? So, I mean, take us through through that part of, of the story, if you, if you would. Exactly. If we're uh, trying to figure out, like, African-American Minhagim uh, or Nusach or Masora, it's only something that has had a chance recently in the past maybe 20 or 30 years to be able to be a thing. As I said before, we see synagogue constitutions. So you couldn't exa- right. weren't exactly welcomed in shul. Um, uh, the, the sort of concept that exists uh, in many African-American communities that Judaism is a white religion, that the real black religion is sort of Christianity. So being a Jew and someone black, you're sort of like a race traitor or an outcast. So even when you're living in African-American communities, you're sort of like a, like a Murano, really, where you're doing it just privately in the house. And so there wasn't really a space or chance for a cohesion for those sort of things to arise until recently. Um, I'm the first generation in my family that's been able to publicly observe holidays since childhood. Like my mother growing up in the 50s in, in uh, Williamsburg and Bentonhurst couldn't exactly run around, you know, in a Purim costume. Right. Yeah. It'd be a bad look. A little black girl, like 1963. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to sell her a So, so what did they do? I mean, you know, as far as you know, uh, your your mother, your grandparents, your great grandparents. What? How did they live their Jewish life? Uh, not being able to really be part of the community. They lived it privately and at home. That's that's how they were able to survive. And where would they have looked for yeah. rabbinic leadership? Where would they have looked for? Uh, guidance. I mean, uh, to what extent could they even access that? Um, I'm not sure about free my grandmother. Um, I know my grandmother did have, like, you know, some Ram. Um, uh, I have somehow. I don't even know how, but both her her humash and her sidra were both like yekish. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, she has these German nusa. Sidereem <laughs> and this German news oh. so, uh, so very weird and wild particularly since I ended up marrying a Yeki <laughs> a black Yeki it comes full circle a blackie <laughs> a blackie a blackie we're coining it that's it <laughs> you heard it here a kente lach <laughs> so wait, wait a sec I, I gotta I gotta ask like it's this is a fascinating story and one of the things that I'm sort of hearing in the story is that you know the the Jewish community over time today and over time has not been so cool with the black Jewish community and maybe that's the understatement of the year and and for me growing up and I can only go back to my own experiences growing up you know in a Jewish community in the states you know this was unknown to us and it may be because my Jewish community growing up in the states was in the midwest and there weren't that many black Jews that you know I could you know know around where I was where I was living but social justice or progressive issues were always at the forefront especially you know I grew up in the reform movement and and that was like a big part of it and it's just bizarre to me that this is like something that wasn't known because we're always talking about issues like tikkun olam and, and looking out into the world and, and where we can you know ally with different with different marginalized communities um, and a good place I would assume to start would be at home you know, in, in the Jewish community and the Jewish community includes people of color and and a deep history of, you know, b- black Jewish tradition in the United States that in many ways predates that of the organized, you know, the majority of the organized Jewish community in the United States. So, um, 
you know, is, is it, is it just that I grew up in the Midwest and I'm unaware? Is there some sort of a, a reckoning that still needs to take place in the broader Jewish community to, to kind of, you know, embrace this and, and start with our own, uh, when we're looking to be allies, um, during this time, you know, how do you make sense of this? I would say yes to all of that. And there's a <clears throat> ton of commentary I have on that. Um, Yalla. uh, when I talk sometimes I hear, uh, what I hear is I- I've never met a black Jew before and I like to do this. How do you know? Right. Like just because I'm wearing Tetsuya Chiba, I could be sitting next to you on a bus in a hoodie and I'm still Jewish just right. because you don't see the outward trappings. Um, there's also sort of a cognitive dissonance sort of saviorhood uh, that happens in Jewish uh, social justice sort of circles. Um, a lot of the language used is, you know, as Jews, it's our, you know, duty and our history to help you know, this community over there. And we're helping these people over there. Well, there are also Jews in that community over there. Right. Like we're a multiracial, multiethnic people. Every issue that exists in any country is a Jewish issue. Stop and frisk affects Jews. Racial profiling affects Jews. Police brutality affects Jews. There is no issue that isn't a Jewish issue. Not that that should be the end of Jews being involved in social issues, so that's sort of a myopic, selfish take. But to sort of frame it as, you know, we're helping those people. Those people are in your backyard. They're, they're in your pews. They're in your synagogue. During your day camp. And with that sort of mindset comes this weird paradox. Like uh, just last year at the URJ conference, where the reform movement had the entire sort of uh, policy stance that we're going to advocate for and uh, champion reparations for African Americans in this country. Great, huge social justice step, very, very bold. At that same conference, one of my colleagues, Mara God, an African American Jewish woman, was constantly harassed at that same conference, was asked what she was doing there when she went to get her name tag and she said she was Mara God, the person back said, okay, we're going to need the real Mara God to come pick up her name tag. We got no apologies from that. Accosted in elevators, um, it got to a point where what do you mean by she accosted? had to be escorted. When you say accosted, well, what, just give an example. Um, she has, it's a, an entire Facebook post that she has, where she details everything that happened, uh, being aggressively approached. She had to be escorted around the conference after a certain point by security, because that was the level and intensity of the interactions that she was having, and the belittling and devaluation of what she had to say and why she was even there. So those two things happened at the same time. It's ridiculous. At the same event, by the same people. Right, there's clearly a disconnect. Uh, right. What do you do with that? <laughs> do, do you think, um, you know, the more that American Jews, especially since the 90s and into the 2000s, birthright and all these are coming to Israel, um, and, and you've been to Israel, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, Israelis, by and large, are mostly not white. You know, uh, there's, there's not that many black people here, but we're not white. A lot of us are, you know, different shades of kind of browns and tans. And then we also we also have the Ethiopian community here. Um, does that is that starting to change the way American Jews are viewing themselves as you know Jews as not just white but a multiracial people? And then kind of alongside that, 
um, you know, I keep hearing something that, you know, uh, again, as someone who's uh, part Sephardic, part Mizrahi, I always, I always hear American Jews talking about themselves as white Jews, which kind of has always bothered me, but me personally, it bothers me. No, so, I mean, it bothers a lot of us. I mean, I, I know, for example, like my kids, my, my wife is of Iraqi and, and, and Persian heritage. My kids are not. They're brown. Yeah, they're, they're brown people and they go to the States and, you know, I, I can, we've all had this happen. I mean, it's like you'll meet certain people and they'll look at my wife and they'll be like, you're Jewish? And it's like, yeah, I come from, you know, my, my grandparents were born in Baghdad. The city was like a third Jewish. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's a, one of the biggest Jewish communities in the world at, at a certain point in time. So, um, I mean, the more, yeah, the more American Jews, uh, Ashkenazi American Jews are exposed to Israelis in that sense. Do you see any kind of change or is, is that still not affecting the perception that Jews are multiracial? Um, it, I don't think it really, uh, affects that because it's too weird to spend. I think it's sort of exotified Jews of color, particularly black Jews. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh yeah, there are black Jews or Ethiopians. Like, well, that's not the only kind of black Jew that exists. It's not some, like, weird exotic subset that exists right. in this one place and then, like, you know, translated and imported like it's ter- a terraria or something. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's very interesting. Wow. So And frustrating. I can, we can only imagine. Um, so we know, uh, <laughs> I, I personally know, because I've heard you speak on this, uh, you're not just an activist for... Uh, you know, Jews of color and for, for social justice and, and for teaching Judaism. You're also really into comics. I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. so I, I got to ask you, DC or Marvel? Oh, that is such a heartbreaking question to ask these days. I I was a dyed-in-the-wool DC boy like, growing up. Uh, but the recent cinematic outings are just trash. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're just trash. Like, well, I got to say, the shows that DC is putting out are much better. The animation are much better. Who's, who's your favorite Adam, character? Like, you're, you're Justice League, you're Batman. Batman, obviously. <laughs> Why? There's just that, like, Superman, he's nice, he's good, right? And he leads sort of from, like, this place of hope. And Batman doesn't lead from a place of hope, the place of realism. Um, and that's sort of my approach, like my work. I don't particularly lead from a place of hope or, oh, people are going to be better. No, I'm going to lead from like how people have historically always acted in cycles when they come into <laughs> contact with things that frighten them or make them uncomfortable. Isn't Batman, though, so like... share a mindset. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here that's going to be blasphemous, but, like, isn't Batman just, like, a rich guy that likes fighting crime? Watch your mouth. Batman's a hero. I mean, I know he's a hero <laughs> to many, but, like, if he wasn't Bruce Wayne and he didn't have, like, a billion dollars in Gotham City, he couldn't be Batman. Of course. It's not like Superman who was, like... That's the whole point. He doesn't have powers. So how is he a superhero? Yeah. He's rich. He's, actually he's a just hero. a rich guy with gadgets. He's actually a hero. Superman's not a hero. Superman goes into ninety percent of his encounters knowing he's probably going to make it out of it. Batman doesn't have that assurity. Batman is like he goes out there every night and does it anyway. He could die. He could literally he could die, die every night. It's Bat- like a, it's like Batman's if- worst arch nemesis is a clown. With manic depressive <laughs> disorder. No offense to any people with manic depressive disorder. Clearly, but do you think like okay, so like, if Jeff Bezos watches Batman, do you think he's like I I could do that? I could be. That'd be fascinating, right? That'd be really fascinating. I mean, 
it it requires a sort of altruism that I don't think Jeff used. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't know. He has some things to work on before he gets to that place. Something fascinating I've heard you talk about, Chase. Um, You know, share share with the listeners here. Um, You've mentioned that kind of comics are America's. Uh, how did you describe it? Well, uh, I, I'd love you to get into this. This, this. this is a deep, deep point, a really cool insight. Uh, take us into that. Um, well, America is one of the youngest countries, especially one of the youngest major countries in the world. And it's unique where it's populated uh, by people from other countries with older traditions. And so people have who come here have that sort of cultural familiarity with mythology and older tales and stories being passed down through generations. Uh, America doesn't, you know, have that. America doesn't have, like, an American mythology. And comic books sort of fill that void. It's the American sort of cultural touchstone that everyone American can sort of buy into. And even the conception and progression of comics follows the same... Uh, pattern as classical sort of world mythology, where world mythology starts out with, you know, a pantheon of gods, and then slowly degenerates to heroic figures, and slowly degenerates to, like, very powerful kings. And comics do the same thing. They start out with, like, a sort of pantheon of gods sort of uh, concept, like your Justice League, where pretty much every member of the Justice League has a counterpart in the Greek pantheon and its mythology. Superman is your Zeus, Wonder Woman's your Hera, Batman, speaking of, obviously your Hades. <laughs> he thrives and lives in the underworld. He literally lives in a cave. Flash is your Hermes. He lives in a cave Green with Lantern a butler. powered by light at your Apollo. <laughs> okay, hang on. Why does Batman not have more than one butler? Like, he's got, it's an old guy, first of all, and he's doing everything. He's helping him fight crime. He's doing, like, the computer you know, high-tech stuff, he's probably cleaning. Does he, he can afford a bigger staff. Uh, but I don't think even Batman has enough money to keep all those mouths shut. Mm, <laughs> didn't think about that aspect. You have the one butler, that's all you have to yeah, worry that's about. That's right, that's right. Wow. All right, well. Hey, so you know what's really cool? I don't know, Benny, if you're aware of this, the Jewish origins of a lot of these comic characters or the creators. Yeah. I know that, I, I know Louis that a lot. Batman, Fox, Bill Finger. Yeah, I know that a lot of it's like allegorical for fighting the Nazis, uh, you know, good and evil and, and that sort of thing. But um, well, Shaban does a great job of that in uh, Cavalier and Clay, which is it's probably right. my favorite yeah, novel of all time. Terrific. Are there? Is do you think there's a? I still have yet to read that one. Oh come on! Are you kidding me? Yeah, I know. I, I say I've lost my cred. I say this to you as both a fan of comics and as a fan of literature, uh, and as an author yourself, you have to read that book. It is. It is. Maybe the best written English language novel I've ever read. All right, it's been on my list for like years. I've just never gotten around. To there you go. The best written English novel you've ever read. Okay, let me let me. Uh, I mean, I read it too, but like, let me qualify that with I mostly read nonfiction, um, so I don't read a lot of novels, and not all of them are originally English. But as far as the original English stuff I'm reading, the writing is just fantastic. Wow! 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 <laughs> Look, he, he kind of he kind I'm of just Shabon kind of shame that I'm seeing here. 
Shabon kind of ruined it for me when he came out with like all kinds of like anti-Israel type stuff. But but actually, that's a good segue into what we're going to talk about next. Because before I like go into a cancel culture place with Michael Shabon, where I want to like not exactly. read that book because of something he said as a person, that kind of ties into what's going on right now in the world. Because you know, right? So so that's we're how it is. we're watching a lot of this here. Um, you know, clearly we're we're connected. We have families. We have friends. Social media. The the mainstream media. And then the Israeli media translating everything for us. Um, but, you know, uh, j- just over a month ago, uh, a black man, George Floyd, was literally murdered by a police officer in front of cameras for the entire world to see. Um, protests, riots, uh, looting, all of this broke out. Um, it seems insane. Um you want to add something here? Well, I was just going to yeah. say, I mean, it seemed insane. I, I didn't, you know, we didn't get into this before, but like I, I grew up in Minneapolis and my family lives in Minneapolis. And when this happened, you know, it was kind of like this, what? Like my mom lives down, literally like she lives a five minute walk down the street from, from, from Lake Street. And, and I think watching it from the distance that we have across the ocean in Israel, but seeing something happen in my hometown and then it was like you know, juxtaposed onto what's going on with COVID. And, and it was like this, you know, I'm used to people calling us here in Israel when there's stuff going down and being like, Benny, are you okay? And now I'm finding myself on the other end of that, calling my family and being like, okay, what the hell is going on? Like, what, what you know, are, is everyone okay and what's going on? And then realizing like, you know, there's, there's something much, 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 much bigger. And in a way, I was kind of, I felt helpless. Like I was, I was here and I couldn't be a part of what was going on in the city that I grew up in. And, you know, I'm trying to, trying to reach people. Um, and, and today, you know, with unverifiable media sources on, fa- on, on social media, plus all the fake news and, and just really in, you know, disingenuous propaganda from going on both sides. So first, you uh, as, as a black man in America, um, how have you experienced this? And then, you know, kind of take us through this. Uh, help us cut through the media. Help us cut through the biases. Help us cut through the fake news. Uh, um, let, let's hear it from your perspective, both personally and, and, you know, kind of taking a broader look at this. So an easy question. Okay. Yeah, we, like, we like the easy questions. <laughs> that wasn't loaded at all. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah. You thought we were so, going to talk about I comics the whole time, the right? Elephant, <laughs> I guess sort of the elephant in the room is, you know, Black Lives Matter, right? The, you know, the hashtag, the uh, movement, um, and people's conceptions and thoughts sort of around that. Um, there's also the uh, criticisms that immediately come for it. The, the sort of knee-jerk reaction of all lives matter? Or uh, what about black-on-black crime? Um, And all these, like, different pieces. Not even getting into the Black Lives Matter is, you know, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel and all those kind of things. Let's come back to that later. Um, Let's save that for the end, for dessert. We'll we'll look back around to that. I just know, just as sort of a, a foundation to the rest of the conversation. I've had very interesting interactions with cops over, you know, my life. Um, once when I was living in Brooklyn and in, in Midwood, uh, you know, very famous Jewish community there. 
It's a uh, Friday night. I'm going to a friend's for, you know, every Shabbat dinner. I'm dressed in full uniform, and um, I get pulled over by a, a police car. I'm like, what are you doing here? I'm going to a friend's for dinner. Well, when we circle around the block, we don't want to see you here again. Based oh. on based okay. on what? I'm not sure. Wait, what day of the week uh, was it? And the thing that happened. Hmm? What day of the week was it? Friday night. Air Shabbat. Going for Air Shabbat dinner with a friend. Pulled over by cops. What are you doing here? We don't want to see you here. We circle around the block. To which, you know, apologetics are like, well, you know, there's so many attacks against your community by, you know, anti-Semitic attacks by, you know, the black community. So they were just being safe. One, this was 2010. Nothing was happening then. Two, I, you know, that's a great point. I, I personally remember reading uh, about the anti-Semitic attack uh, being carried out uh, by a natally dressed man in a three-piece suit, black hat, and zips it. Uh, as I recall, it, it happened on the 31st of February. And uh, so that's a very cogent point to make. Uh, a few months ago, up here in New City, um, again, Mosei Shabbat this time, and we're coming home from Shul, from the congregation that I'm the rabbi of, uh, and my daughter's like, we'll concentrate. So my wife's like, yeah, I'm going to go walk ahead, I'm going to get the, the car, I'm going to come back, get the two of you up, so, you know, I just do this weird, painful walk thing. Um, so my daughter and I are standing on the corner for maybe 13 seconds, if that and the police car pulls up media. What's going on here? So I go, my daughter's constipated, and I'm waiting for my wife for the car. I go, oh, well, we're just getting reports from people that, you know, there's you know someone standing on the car looking suspicious. Well, that is amazing reaction time. We've been standing here 13 seconds. In that space of time, someone picked up the phone, called the police department, which is a mile in the opposite direction from where we are. Dispatch went out. You got it. Drove here all in the space of 13 seconds. Beautiful work. Um, a few weeks later, my wife, this is another Friday night, my wife and my daughter are walking down the uh, road. They get pulled over by police. I'm like, what's going on here? I'm like, well, we're going to dinner to a friend. And the policeman asked my wife, well, and who's this? She's like, my daughter? Like, do you think that she was in the middle of the world's slowest kidnapping? Like, <laughs> walking a five-year-old down the highway? Like, what exactly did you think was happening? And it's like, oh, I just wanted to make sure, like, that you were, that everything was okay, you were safe, and he drives off. Well, if you were concerned that she was safe, why wouldn't you have offered a ride? It's the middle of the So, start. like, what do you, what, 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 like, like really, no what, what's really going on? Like, when that happens, you know, you're thinking to yourself, you see the cop car coming, you see what's going on. It's like, oh, shit, here we go. Yep, being pulled over for living while black. Right, you're black on a Friday night walking down the street. Is that the, the New York version of driving right. while black? <laughs> just driving while black, walking while black, living while black, just blacking while black. I mean, it's it's Apparently, incredible. It's, actionable um, crime. It's, it's incredible. It's something that, you know, um, I, my dad teases me because I look like an Arab terrorist, but... Uh, um, but but truthfully, I've Wait, never been. What's that? You're not. I, I am. I am not. Um, but but so truth, truthfully, uh, in America, I've never been stopped or harassed by police. Uh, you know, it's something that I don't even think about. I never see an American cop um, and say, you know, oh, here we go again. You know, um, and, and when all this happened, um, you know, my, you know, admittedly, I don't have 
a lot of black friends. I grew up in an area with very few black people. Um, but the ones that I am friends with, I'm seeing the stories coming up on, on Facebook. I'm in touch with you. I'm in touch with other people and realizing that, that for black people in America, this is an everyday part of their experience. Something that I think a lot of white people are just way too dismissive of. And, and, you know, um, how does that make you feel on, on a regular basis? I find it weird when people like are just discovering this because it's not like we haven't been saying this the whole time. Right. Like uh, it's sort of my same reaction to people who were shocked when Trump got elected saying, oh, this isn't our country. Like, What country did you think you were living in this entire time? On the day Trump got elected, the American government was taking land away from native tribes again to drill for oil again. On the day Trump was elected, women were being paid 80% of men. On the day Trump was elected, there was an entire ethnic group saying, hey, maybe not Judas the death cop. Like, these are things that have always existed. Uh, and when it comes to the sort of existence as uh, a black American, like a cultural touchstone is having the talk with your kids on how to get through a police encounter safely. Um, that's never not happened <laughs> since ever whether blatantly having police dogs and fire hoses, you know, directed at you in the 50s and 60s, or being pulled off the side of the road and assaulted in any number of ways in the 30s and 40s to the, to the police brutality that exists today. Um, and what is sort of more frustrating are sort of the pushback responses that you get from that. Uh, the most ridiculous one, again, being that whole black-on-black crime thing. Like, well, why aren't you protesting that? So, I mean, take us through why that because you hear you hear this a lot. You you hear this a lot, um, um, and and you know if we if we can get unattached, you know, disemotional is that's not even a word. I just made up word. Unemotional, uh, unattached from this for a second. You know, I come from a policy background, for example, a policy analyst research background, um, and people try have tried to make the point. You know, some of them. To what about the issue, which which I can't stand when people what about issues, but some of them are genuinely trying to have a conversation here, um, and, and you know feel free to engage with it as much as you feel like like you're qualified to. I know you're not a spokesman for for any kind of movement or organization. Um, you know people say, okay, you know I forget the exact statistics, but on any given weekend in America, uh, fifty, a hundred, whatever uh, black children or black people are killed in black on black crime, um, and, and you know, the numbers of, of black people killed by police every year are actually surprisingly small. So why isn't that an issue? I mean, you know, we, we have a platform here. You can talk, you can explain this, and hopefully people are going to listen. Why why shouldn't that be an issue? Here's, here's one of two reasons. The first reason is um, you're comparing, that argument sort of compares the actions of civilian criminals to police who are an institution and agent of the state. So police have the responsibility to be protecting all of its citizens equally. It's not comparable to random criminal show over here. That criminal's job isn't to not you know, be a criminal. That's what he does. Right. When the police are acting in the same way and you're comparing these two groups, that's inherently a problem. And secondarily, uh, I forget who has the quote. I think it's George Carlin, where he's like, there's three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> and so people are just creatively looking at statistics, but not actually ingesting what that means. 
Like, for example, uh, a, a huge sort of uh, talking point is, you know, uh, African-Americans make up 13% of the population, yet they commit, you know, 50% of the murders. Okay. There are two true things that are in that statement, but they aren't true. Yes. According to FBI data, 53% of uh, crimes are committed right. violent, by violent various crimes black are, Americans. Right. Uh, and yes, black Americans are 13% of the American population. That doesn't mean that the 13% are the people committing the 53% of the crime. Why? I'm part of the 13%. Well, yeah, that's I've just, never committed the crime. That's just like kind of like dumb people that don't understand statistics and how statistics work. Exactly. At the, but but it does but it does raise an interesting point, which is like if you're focusing on that statistic and the reason that you're bringing that up and saying fifty percent of murders are committed by black men or black people, and that's something you're saying to be like okay, but black on black crime, you're not peeling back the layer of the onion. And if you're peeling it back, the question you know if that's true, let's assume that's true. Okay, why? What is going on in a ethnic group? that has a high crime rate. Why does that exist? You know, what what is going on, you know, is is it, because if you say well that's just the way it is, then 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 what you're kind of accepting is that there's something innately wrong in the psyche of the black man that causes him to commit crime, which is which is you just exposing yourself as a unabashed racist to be honest because you know, we we, have, we share the same DNA. Science will say that we are 99.999, you know, whatever percent similar. You know, the, the fact that there's a, you know, a difference in pigmentation is a genetic, it, it doesn't make any, you know, everything else is, a, is, a, is in a way a construct, but it's, it's, um, you get to this place where it's like Americans are not asking the questions or historically are not asking the questions of why things are the way they are. Well, well I think they are. I mean, well, today I'm saying in, in the past, I don't think that there was so much of a deep conversation going on within white america to say why are things the way they are you know why is there a you know a, a neighborhood that this is happening or why and i think that something that's happened to me now in 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 covid times is you see all of a sudden there's this major health crisis this this massive thing we have to mobilize society to get through this time and within like a month there's, or I don't even think it was a month. I'm not sure of the exact timeline, but it's like within two weeks, there's all of a sudden $2 trillion to just throw at this problem. And it's like, wait a second, we've known about the existence of all of these neighborhoods that have been in a certain way for generations. And, and nobody thought like, you know, maybe that's a national crisis. We can throw some money at it and fix it in that sort of a mobilized way. And it just, it, it, it gets to me in such a visceral way that I, 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 I can't imagine, you know, how we got to a place like this where it's just, you know, it's 2020. What the hell? I'm sorry. I don't think it's even necessarily a national problem or even the way it's framed. Uh, I think it's just a function of the segregationist uh, legacy of this country and the redlining and, and how neighborhoods have been broken down. Crime is going to be committed against more of people who are the same than anyone else because they don't live with anyone else. If you're talking about black-on-black crime, sure, 63%, according to like 2017 uh, data, 63% of, uh, of crime is black-on-black. White-on-white crime is 56%. Why? Because white people live around white people right. and black people live around black people. And, and nobody's calling you it white-on-white white crime. Oh, 89%. 
black, black and black murders are 89%. White and white murders are 81%. So theoretically, black people should only be 8% more concerned than white people are about you know, black on black crime. But where do you, when do you see uh, intercommunal crime initiatives in white communities? Where do you see you know, trading your guns for money programs? Where do you see anything as being uh, claimed that black communities should be doing? So, I mean, correct, correct also, me here if I'm wrong. How do you know wrong. that you're not doing it? Right. Correct, you don't, you correct don't me here if I'm wrong. Why would they tell you these things? Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, uh, and it, the point has been brought up that, um, you know, we Americans don't call it white-on-white white crime. They just call it crime, right? So why do we have to be specific? Correct. But, you know, I saw a statistic, um, and I think it's the same FBI data, that says uh, police are not actually more likely to kill black people than they are to kill any other group or, or not significantly more likely. So A, is that true? Um, and, and, and if, if it is true, explain why the interactions between police and black people, specifically black men tend to be so much more loaded and to lead to these kind of situations that we really wouldn't be aware about if we weren't seeing them on camera because everyone has a cell phone. I would say it is absolutely untrue that, police do not kill black and brown people at a more disproportionate rate than white people. It's absolutely true that they do. Um, just arrest alone. At a certain point in the summer of 2014, I believe, uh, when stop and frisk was still a thing, there were more stop and frisk arrests of black and brown teens than the population of black and brown teens in New York. How does that work? That's wild. So We've is- made more arrests than the population. If you've made 40 arrests, but there are only 20 people of a group, it's like, how do you manage to do that? So can you, can you for a second, um, so, sorry, Chase, I just want to, I want to ask, like, because what you're, what you're talking about right now, what we're discussing is, is a feature of, of something else, which is that there is, you know, there's, there's sort of a, you know, we hear these terms thrown around a lot today, and I don't think that a lot of people you know, that, that aren't experiencing it themselves fully understand. What, what is systemic racism? What's, what is systemic racism versus systematic racism? You know, because as far as, as, far as we understand, and, as, and I think that the, the, what people in America, uh, you know, by and large, or, or here in Israel, you know, understand is that, wait, there was a civil rights movement. There are no longer any, you know, unabashedly racist laws in the books that say, you know, a black man is not allowed to marry a white woman or something like that. And if there are, they're, they're against federal law. So how is it that there's a system of racism that exists in 2020 in the United States. Basically, you know, for, for all of us uh, uh, ignoramuses here, uh, uh, explain to us what systemic racism means, because I think a lot of, a lot of people hear it uh, and say, well, I'm not racist. Right. You know, uh, I, I don't see color. or I'm not racist or, you know, some of my best friends. Um, so explain, the, explain this to us. Please break it down. Hmm. <clears throat> I'm thinking of two sort of examples of systemic racism. Uh, the first I'm thinking uh, is the Federal Housing Administration. Um, how huge loans were given to white Americans to sort of create, uh, you know, suburban, gated communities, these, these huge sort of neighborhoods, uh, but would only give those loans on the basis that those houses and those neighborhoods would not sell to African Americans. And even if that house was sort of resold, it couldn't be resold to African Americans. And that was part of the lease. Uh, those clauses are unconstitutional now and they don't like exist anymore, but they existed for a huge chunk of time. They existed for about 
60 years. And in that 60-year period, um, generational wealth was allowed to be generated uh, that the original owners of the house were then able to use that money to help their kids buy houses and uh, put down payments and mortgages. So inherently, even though those laws don't exist, it's created sort of this wealth disparity. And there's this concept of, oh, just put yourself up by your bootstraps. So if the boots don't have straps, you can't do that. And unless you're going to then create a different system that then sort of compensates for that, and you just let this one run and just take out like a piece of bad code, the system is still running on the assumption and uh, the basis of having barred access to sort of African-Americans. Another example, uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Where the uh, I can't remember her name, the female Asian screenwriter. Uh, Netflix. I uh, didn't want to come back to the sequel, but she wasn't going to get paid. And the DGA said, "Well, you know, we pay screenwriters, you know, based on their sort of seniority in you know the business. So it is a completely objective. You know, uh, the white screenwriter was has been in business for you know twenty years, and the Asian screenwriter has only been in there for three, which is sort of literally systemic. If you aren't being picked." and you can't enter these realms, it might seem objective on paper. Like, well, we're fair. You were here three years, you were here 20 years. But excluding the fact that we didn't let you in. So then you inherently can't get that sort of experience, which means you can't get the higher pay grade, but on paper it looks fine. Sort of another example of how systemically it sort of works. I like to give like the example of um, like sort of popsicle sticks, right? If I hold a popsicle stick, and ask you to move your finger from one side to the other. It's easy, right? So this one, move it. Now you take one. Then you add another one on top of that. You could have just said pens. Like another I mean, one on top of that. You didn't have to do the example of, of popsicle sticks. You now have sticks. like a fence at a gate. You can't just go through. <laughs> I mean, it's a visual example. It's not necessarily going to work for anyone. Yeah. So that's really what systemic racism is. It's a bunch of, well, one, it's either the continuing of a system that was inherently bigoted in the first place, which is removing sort of the bad code, or two, a series of independently sort of benign systems when combined that create that barrier to keep people out. Okay. So if, if I want to say it also, you know, it's, it's, I was listening to a podcast recently and um, it was an interview with a, a evolutionary biologist named Brett Weinstein. Are you familiar with Brett Weinstein? I am not. He's also a political. He's also a progressive political activist, and and he teaches biology. Right. Right. So, he was actually talking about this from from a from a biological perspective, and he was talking about I don't know how exactly to say it, but but there are political systems that are in place in the United States dating back generations, uh, you know, going back pre Civil War times, uh, when when black people in America were 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 in bondage, were slaves. And, uh, you know, going through time, you saw a society take place or, or evolve whose primary role was to prevent rebellion in a way um, on, on the part of these, uh, on the part of black people, on the part of, of slave populations. Uh, and as time would evolve, you would see, in, with, with emancipation of slaves, you would see, and, you know, very, very high incarceration rates uh, continue to take place within the black population, basically up until this day, which in some sort of an essence takes out a lot of the male population of a community. 
Uh, and when there are fewer males in a community, there is, you know, the females have a, have a have much weakened negotiation power when it comes to, you know, the men, because the men are, are scarce in the community. Uh, and the few men that are in the community uh, basically have, uh, I don't know how, how exactly he said it, but he said, you know, they, they're able to act more freely. Uh, am I saying that right? Not freely, but... Uh, well, basically, a bre- it breaks down the the natural family unit and the community unit is what he was right. Right, and and you see these, you know, there are issues that now are in a community that have an evolved family structure, um, which you know are here to this day, and you don't have an equal chance in that way of you know equal opportunities or whatnot. Layer on top of that, all kinds of other elements of racism. And you have problems that are going back generations and generations to no fault of your own uh, that are baked into the system of America. So while you do not have, you know, somebody knocking on your door and you know being being racist to you to your face, you live in a system which has automatically put you at a disadvantage. First of all, you uh, still have people and you still have being racist people. to your face. I, right. I, I, uh, my sister lives in in Bloomington, Indiana, and um, she shared a video of of one of her friends who was literally almost uh, lynched he was in the process of being lynched by these drunk you know racist rednecks and and a whole bunch of people had to come in and and physically save the person from being lynched and it was all caught on camera so it's horrifying to think that this is you know still happening um anyway just happy to hear your thoughts on on any or all of this uh (laughs) um but uh speaking to your earlier point about systems I, what first has to be addressed is that the police, as they exist today, are inherently an outgrowth of uh, controlling African-American populations. It's an outgrowth of the slave patrols of the South. And after the Civil War, there were specific calls for people who used to be part of slave patrols to become part of the uh, new police system as it uh, became restructured in that way. Um, it also sort of isn't addressing the fact that the 13th Amendment didn't actually abolish slavery. It abolished slavery except for as punishment of a crime. So then it does behoove you to then be more violent and to arrest more uh, African-Americans because then you can essentially put them right back into slavery and not have them part of society. Is this the for um, prison, for-profit prison model that you're referring to? Uh, yes, it eventually becomes the for-prison profit model. Um, that all the pieces that sort of led to that in the first place. Uh, first, it was chain gangs, and then eventually moved into the prison industrial complex that we enjoy today. Uh, the police system, as we know it, exists up north because once the Irish came, the same methods that were being used to control the black population of the south were then imported to control the Irish population in the north. So the police system, as it exists, its primary function was never sort of a serve and protect. Wait, so, sorry, why, why were they trying to control the African American? Sorry, sorry. Why, why were they trying to control the Irish population in the north? Oh, because the Irish were the new batch of immigrants and they were also feeling unrestful like the race riots that would happen that happened uh, during the Civil War. Every four seconds like the Irish were Irish and Italians were being herded into. That's why uh, policemen and firemen are sort of legacy Irish-Italian family mm-hmm. occupations because they're very hazardous. So, like, the real white Americans didn't want to do them, so they gave them to the Irish and the Italians. 
Um, so let me ask you two so, loaded. Yes, again, so, let, let me ask you two loaded questions on this. Um, a or three loaded questions. First, do do you think the police is inherently racist in America? Secondly, there are a lot of black and other minority police officers today. Um, so how does that fit in with with the understanding of this? Um, I guess we'll start we'll start with two questions that are loaded. Uh, do I think that individual policemen are inherently racist? No. Obviously, there are individual policemen who are racist, but by and large. Was the system created uh, under racist auspices to continue to propagate racism? Yes. Uh, the same way that uh, redlining was, or the same way... Explain redlining. I, th- I think a lot of people might not be familiar with it, maybe outside of America. Um, uh, redlining was a governmental practice uh, where they would delineate neighborhoods where African Americans could or couldn't live or could or couldn't um, move into. Uh, I would say the police department is uh, as inherently racist as a system as uh, teaching is inherently misogynistic. Because in the early days of America, teachers were mostly women, and so you paid women less. Now, even though now women have it's sort of been a, a, a unisex occupation. It's still being paid on that same sort of misogynistic mindset. So teachers are paid less than other sort of city employees. And I think the police system sort of works the same way. So Chase, that's what it was built on. So it just continues to run and operate that same way. So Chase, what 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 you're saying is that there's this organization that's called the police, and that historically speaking, the police has been operated in a way that because of certain legacy conditions, because of its origins in the United States, has a major racist streak through it in a, as a system, uh, even though that there are you know lots of individual police officers who are not racist, uh, but that it's going to have a certain way because there's a certain inherent culture in policing in America. But here we are living in Israel, yeah. and you know people are listening to this all, all over the world. And we hope. We hope, we hope. And... I have never been. I've never been to a place on Earth that does not have a police department. You know, but the, the institution of having a, a police department, you know, it's in one form or another in existence everywhere you go and throughout history. And throughout history, uh, it happens to be that in the American experience, there is a un, you know an inconvenient and and racist origin story to that police department. Here in Israel, it's it's very different. In France, it's different. And you know, in uh, well, we have our own issues. Yeah, here. we have our own issues, but, uh, but including the racial issues. But let's, uh, that's for a different. Episode. No, no. What I'm saying is, like, our our police department was not founded by people who were formerly manned slave patrols. Like, it's not at it, all. That's not the origin story here. You know, the Japanese have their own police. Right. The you know the the Chinese have. So I mean, we we keep hearing this term defund the police. Um, to right. us. And I can say this, you know, I'm a former uh, uh, military career officer, and, and you served in the military, in the police, actually. The police. It sounds crazy to us. So, first of all, what does this mean when we hear defund the police? What, what does that mean? Um, so, first, I want to uh, go back to uh, addressing sort of police departments around the world. <laughs> uh, the American one works very differently. We're the ones that have the less, the least amount of training required and the largest amount of fatalities. Right. Um, uh, the way the American police system works does inherently sort of operate off sort of those racist tropes. Um, you can find several examples, things like uh, Rosewood or, or Tulsa or other race-based 
white Americans and African American communities, where a sheriff, oh, we need to find this black guy. I'm deputizing all of you right now. You're right now officially like police. Like that's essentially still happening that way. Oh, you just out of high school, you can be a cop now because it's not about. That's crazy. It's not about the escalation as it is in international countries. It's not about um, the welfare of the citizens the way it is in other countries, which is why there's training, which is why there's, you know, the esc- or there's uh, pacifist sort of um, techniques that are baked in to other international. So, so you've said it now. You said about that. You've said this word, you know, training. You've you've mentioned it a couple of times now. So wouldn't the answer then to certain pro- yeah. to this problem be? You know, better training, better resource allocation towards training, towards hiring. And I'm not talking about police reform in the historical sense that people talk about police reform as a solution. I'm talking about a fundamental restructuring of the entire game, uh, whereby instead of defunding the police, you inject a massive amount of structured capital to the police departments and say, you're going to you're going to now train 20% of the time. Instead of 3 days a year, yeah, it's 20% defund, of the time. Right. So it's not defund, Instead it's actually of, more fund and, and just do a much right. better job. I mean, isn't that what you're saying? No, it's, no you know, you could say don't buy military equipment. There's no longer an uh, opportunity to buy militarized equipment with this. Now this is going towards tactical oh, first, training. Yeah, the, when I uh, see police with military grade equipment, that's stupid. ridiculous. That's, well, one that's literally what the fund the police made. It doesn't mean get rid of the police departments. It means reallocating funds to other uh, uh, government agencies that will help, you know, decrease the amount of need for police to be there in the first place. Uh, it was very uh, mind-boggling during these protests to see these police rolling out with enough uh, military-grade equipment to overthrow a small country, and remembering just a couple of months earlier that. Healthcare workers were wearing garbage bags because they didn't have funding for PPE equipment. So that's what the fund the police means. Maybe our healthcare workers should be but able to have their equipment and not our police to have tanks. <laughs> you know, and you're absolutely right, obviously, but I think that there's a lot of younger people, at least this is my take on it, there's a lot of younger people that I saw, you know, participating in these protests and by the way we love protests i mean it's it's i don't i personally don't like protests i love pro you don't like protests no, I, I can't stand what a protest you're not liking protests but it's you know there's i think for a lot of younger people it might be that defund the police they're not understanding the nuance that you just expressed for them defund the police is kind of a code for abolish the police yeah, like let's let's have you know no discipline in school, right? Or no school, or yeah, you know that's what kind of it. It, it like seems party like. on. <laughs> that's how it's being portrayed. Um, that I think it's a sort of deliberate, uh, more conservative-minded take to sort of um, vilify what the goals are. The people that are delineating what the funding the police look like are the younger people. They are the people in like their mid to late twenties. They they know exactly what it is. And, and if you go make a like a basic like Google search or ask what the fund the police means, you'll find several think pieces from the that younger generation, the same generation that seems vilified as you know millennials just eating avocado toast and killing the wine industry. That same sort of by, by the uh, way, I love insane. avocado toast. You would love avocado toast. I do love avocado toast. Okay, so let me let me let me let me digress for a second because avocado <laughs> toast was brought into the conversation. Why is it that every time there's avocado toast that comes with a thirteen dollar price tag? I I don't get that. You know the the last time I had avocado toast was in Sydney 
coincidentally, at the most hipster like little cafe, and I did pay thirteen dollars for freaking avocado toast and like a free range free range egg, but it was delicious. And you feel like a jerk off afterwards. You Absolutely, spent thirteen dollars and some <laughs> avocado and a piece of bread. Yeah, but it's good bread. Anyway, <laughs> back to I just nobody can see this. I just had the most disgusted look on my face. He does. For those watching on the video. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you, but 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 for real, like there are, there are voices saying no, no police. I've seen these voices. Yeah, there are voices saying abolish the police, but those are the people that are saying abolish the police, defund the police. Doesn't mean the same thing. They aren't the same group. But see that sort of perception that's put forth that oh, it's a young kid that's trying to like overthrow something. But maybe same perception. But it's Chase, they don't have any concept what from the police. Well, no, we actually have you know plans and strategies and where from wait, 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 with, like, with all, things are actually quite with, well thought out. With with all due respect to what what you're saying and 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 you know, the, I'm really happy that there are people who are addressing this from a nuanced perspective. But the word defund literally it, there's a meaning to that word, which means to take away money from the police departments. It doesn't mean restructure the police. It doesn't mean retrain the police. It means defund the police and if what the police need or what a part of what they need is intensive amounts of training to hire the best people for the job people that aren't going to lose their cool in an extraordinarily stressful environment that none of us can really fully understand and take them through the training that they know how to you know what, seems, what did you say uh, um, uh, de-escalate right de-escalate. it seems like they're going to need much yeah. more money and not to be defunded it seems like it needs to be the opposite direction that they need to hire basically they need a better slogan yeah they need a, maybe a different yeah. marketing I'm, my whole thing my whole thing is um you know again I, I come from a military government policy background i work now at a policy institute and my whole thing is you know i'm, I'm okay how do we implement these because because the idea when you say it is a good idea um and it needs to be done um but it's one of these things that you have to get the middle. You have to get the undecided. You have to even get soft, the soft right, soft conservatives on board if you want to make these far-reaching changes. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of within this movement, within this groundswell, is there thinking um, about that? Or is it is, – because it seems to me uh, – and, I and you know, I'm, I'm able to take a step back, you know, me and Benny here – um, again, one of the reasons we started this podcast is to take a step back and to take these nuanced looks. But a lot of people who are kind of further to the right are going to stop and say, defund the police. These guys are crazy. I don't want to hear them. This is insane. This is ludicrous. Um, so is first of all, is there a discussion about, okay, how do we approach this to get conservatives or you know moderate conservatives on our side? Because you're not going to make any social change unless you get, you know, kind of the people in the middle on your side on these matters? I'm not sure how much I can speak to that. I, I haven't uh, kept that much track of the dialogue around defunding the police and opening it up to be more welcoming to, you know, hard rights or conservative. I soft personally right. Soft right. Uh, don't soft right or any right. <laughs> I personally am not thoroughly convinced at how uh, successful the defund the police movement is going to be. 
because we're a country where our military is like 15 times the size of the next 10 countries. And those are all allies. So that's an entire American culture shift that would have to happen that I don't particularly think. When you're talking about cities where their police department budget is tens of times larger than their education budget, one defunding, I don't think that many people are going to buy it, but it's a necessary thing that needs to happen. They need to maybe take away the funds from the, oh, after the fact, and now they're in the streets and criminals, maybe put it into the schools so they're not there in the first place. Look, I go but back. Shifting from police funds to education alone, whether it's regular school or police education, is not going to make that much of a huge dent in police department activities because how often do those tanks get thrown out and all that riot gear and that full. And right. how often will it have to get to that point if those funds are reallocated in towards community centers, towards schools, towards after-school programs, towards counseling, towards uh, drug rehab programs? When you're focusing on just giving it all, like, oh, we need to stop these things, but that's after the fact. Well, let's try to prevent them before they even happen. Well, I, I, and here I, I would, you know, I go back right. to what I said I before. I would, I would, I'm saying I would go back to what I said before. Like maybe it isn't that the money needs to come out of the police budget to do all of this, the, those things. I mean, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic an influx of two trillion dollars, you know, to assist people in the pandemic. And now we can argue about the merits of where that money went and who took it and how and how corrupt the system was and you know how many people that applied for, you know, the stimulus didn't get it and you know received credit cards in the mail didn't know what to do with. It. I mean, I hear I've heard ridiculous stories. Uh, but the fact is, is that there's a lot of money sitting around somewhere. And, you know, why isn't that money going to do all of those things that you just said and it's necessary to do? Why does it take a massive crisis for people to let that money come out of the Treasury when, you know, I go to America? You know, I, was, I, I was in America in February, right before the pandemic. And I'm riding on the train from Washington to uh, to New York. And when you're riding on Amtrak from Washington to New York, if, if you know, for those that aren't... Uh, they haven't done it. I mean, you get to see the neighborhoods that are by the train tracks. And by and large, when you're traveling through the cities um, and you're, you're, you're going through, you know, Baltimore, uh, places in, you know, South Philadelphia, um, in between, and even small towns, just all up and down the Delaware River. I mean, it looks like shit. It, and I look at it and it's like, this is this is America. And it's weird because that that's America. And then it's like, you're in New City and that's America, and then there's Newport and Rhode Island and that's America, and Beverly Hill, and it's like you have such a huge disparity. Huge, disparity. huge, huge, huge disparity. And it seems like a lot of the problems that exist in America would be a lot better if people that were on the bottom were brought a little bit further up towards the top, and I'm not going towards any sort of an economic theory with this. It's just, it is, it is to me strange, and I, and I mentioned this before, it is strange that when you look out the window and you see that kind of decay going on in 2020 America, that that's not perceived as a crisis on a national level by people. And it seems to me like there's this individuality in America that says like, that's not me. That's not my problem. And it's like, we don't even see each other anymore. Right. I mean, it's, it's crazy that the rest of us in the world, we can say this not being in America anymore. are like, okay, how is America the only, you know, modern country that doesn't have a healthcare system, right? It's kind of one of these things. And and we were discussing this before we started. Um, we're surprised. Um, you know, you have Donald Trump running for president again. Uh, 
easily the most divisive, um, you know, the people who support him, I'm not going to get into that, but, but he's clearly a divisive figure and who thrives on, on, on creating this divisiveness in America. And opposite you him, you have, you know, a 75-year-old uh, or however old he is, Joe Biden, who I'm, I'm sure he's a good guy. Um, he is immortal. Is, is that, you know, we were, we're surprised that this movement and this time hasn't produced a presidential candidate that young people in America who are clearly going out in the streets and demanding change you know, where is the presidential candidate that's coming out of this who can make these changes? I mean, are, are you seeing anything? Is, is, is there any talk? Is there, you know, how do we change this? He wants a drink now. For those listening, <laughs> he is he has got his uh, hand on his chin and he looks dumbfounded. He's touching his face. <laughs> We're going to color commentary this. Uh, right. I don't that is such a that's such a question. I'm not like as a country. Like, why don't we have a healthcare system? Why are we one of three countries in the world that still use the imperial system? It's like it's us and two third world countries. Like, <laughs> there are so many weird, broken things about America. And, and yet, it's, it's everyone like still wants to come to America. Where do, you, where do you start? Like, how do you start? So where, where do you start? Um, I think a good place to start would at least for America to get to the habit of acknowledging the whys of where we are. Um, like, actually talking through like, legacies of slavery and racism and these kind of things. Like how, you know, how Germany, you can't go over any four seconds, any four steps up. Here's this flag. This happened here. We did this. That happened. Um, we're over here in America fighting about Confederate statue, which I find very strange that Lincoln is, you know, Republicans are the party of Lincoln. So, like, right. that was the union. Yeah, so a, that's a big I'm sure Republicans I, I, are getting mad at Democrats for taking down their own statues. Yeah, I found it very strange that the president came out the other day and said that he's, you know, and he said it in his very Trump-esque way, which I'm not even, even going to try to do his uh, do his voice, but it was, you know, he basically, we're never going to change, we're never going to change the name of our U.S. Army bases that are named after Confederate generals. It's like, well, these people committed open treason against that army. Like, they shouldn't have bases named after them. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. But that brings us to... Also, an, they're an, Democrats, right? Right. Right. But that brings us to another place, which is like, okay, now, you know, there's a lot of us that can definitely like me and Dan be, uh, you know, in a place where we're on board with taking down Confederate monuments. I mean, we're we're two good northerners who grew up in in the Midwest. You know, I don't have any sort of a thing where I'm like, that's our heritage. Like, I'm not offended. You know, a lot of people I don't care. But it's like, you know, I, I don't understand why a country should have statues to people that were open traders against it. And that's even before we get into what they were fighting for. Um, but now, you know, there there is a that's place where it's they're like... They're raised in protest of that. Right. They're being raised during the civil rights movement to intimidate African-American communities as a sort of remember your place sort of flex. Right. And a lot of people like aren't aware were, of that. After the Civil War, they were put up during the civil rights movement. Right. But I think I think you're, you we now are getting to a place where it's going beyond Confederate statues. You know, there are calls to take down the Jefferson Memorial in Washington D.C. There are calls to take down the Washington Monument, which 
right? logistically uh, would be difficult. To Prin- Princeton renamed the building named after uh, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson, who who right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this kind of takes us to a point, and you mentioned uh, you know statues. So I, I think a lot of us, uh, at least we have a good feeling the kind of people who are going to listen to this podcast are going to be like, okay, Confederate statues, we get it. And, and and I think a lot of Americans aren't aware of the backstory that you mentioned that they weren't always there. They were literally put up in the 60s to intimidate black people and, and um, out of spite. But let's talk about statues and buildings named after people who were of good standing during their time, but then we can go back and say, well, according to today's values, you know, they were racist, they were misogynist, they were uh, exploitative. Uh, How do you feel about this kind of movement to go back to statues and buildings and monuments of people who were not controversial then, okay, but they, they are if you go back with today's standards and revisit them? How do you feel about that? I don't think, I don't really buy the uh, by our standards argument. I think that has a very limited application. Um, uh, and I don't think that the argument that they were fine in their society is necessarily a good thing. Uh, to make a wild sort of analogy, uh, if you were a Nazi figure in Nazi Germany, that was what society was doing. So would it be fair to just, well, no, that society was bad. It was a bad society, which is why you weren't problematic in it. Slave owning was a bad thing. So if you were a slave owner, then you were doing a bad thing in a bad society. Uh, especially given that there were people during that same period, time period who were doing the right thing. Not like everyone during a time period was doing thing X. Everyone wasn't a misogynist then. Everyone wasn't owning slaves. Everyone wasn't sexist. Everyone wasn't xenophobic. There were voices speaking out. There were voices demonstrating. There were voices doing the right thing. Um, the extent that it's going to is like renaming buildings and monuments. I'm not sure how I feel on it in either direction. All right, but why not? Why not take down this name of this person that was doing these bad things because we're now actually addressing it? Um, in science fiction, they just renamed the H.P. Lovecraft sort of word. H.P. Lovecraft was a huge racist. I, I'm not familiar with that. Sure. Uh, whenever you see like the, the wiggly tentacle monsters, like Cthulhu, all that, that's all H.P. Lovecraft inspired kind of deal. Um, well, why not actually start to. D- does well, that erase wait, history? Doesn't that erase I, I, our collective consciousness? Or, or, or to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, Dan, when you need to actually go and, and make an effect change on a policy level, you need. You need the middle, which means you need also some of the soft right uh, or vice versa. And if you're going all out, you know, full, you know, full, uh, full war, full revolution in the beginning of it, um, how are you going to get people that are, you know, they don't want to see the Washington Monument pulled down. They don't want to see people, uh, you know, advocate for the destruction of so many things that they hold near and dear. But they may be on board with you about those Confederate things. They may say, you know what? Yeah, that makes total sense right now. That those there shouldn't be any place in that in America. But they still have a place in their heart for the ideals of the Enlightenment values that you know saw uh, the birth of the Constitution of the United States. Right. I mean, how do we talk about people who were massively important in history? You can't deny their important roles, 
and they were flawed. Okay, so we're not talking about people whose existence in life was to be a slave owner or a slave trader or uh, a Nazi who literally hunted people down, you know, and, and tried to kill them. We're talking about people who founded a country, who led the Revolutionary War, who wrote the Constitution, okay, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, is that, first of all, I mean, it's clearly a debate that we're having. It's beyond should we have it or not. But how do we have that debate? Uh, in a constructive way as a society. This is going to sound weird and pretentious. Go for it. But I think this conversation is sort of a manifestation of privilege. And this is why Clearly. I say it. Um, as someone Jewish, as someone African-American, that's my life. Right? I enjoy films from the 1930s. Wait for a second, there's going to be a blackface scene, something minstrelly. Uh, as a Jew, Rambam, great on Mishnah Torah. If I need to know how a shofar is kosher, whether it's broken this way or that way, great. Rambam also says those who are not able to achieve the higher spiritual values are the black-colored peoples and those like them in their climate. Among the nature-created things, they are more than a monkey but less than a man. So for minorities, at least in this country, we navigate that all the time. Oh, we like this piece of music. Oh, that guy was racist. Oh, this is such a good book. Really hated women. It's built into us having to exist in this country. Um, I mean, I have that with Mel Gibson movies. So how? To be, to be. I still like Lethal Weapon. <laughs> Great movie, but the guy's a raging anti-Semite. I mean, so right. So how do you deal with this? I mean, yeah, you you as both uh, an African American and as a Jew, right? And, and I can only speak from a Jewish experience. We've been dealing with this our whole lives, um, but I, you know. I don't know if I've ever thought to bring down a statue of, let's say, Patton, because, you know, he defeated the Nazis, but turns out he was kind of racist and anti-Semitic, right? I mean, this this sort of, well, for me, for a lot of, again, African-Americans, it just, it is what it is. Um, a lot of these initiatives aren't necessarily hugely minority, you know, led. They're, they're mostly white American, you know, quote-unquote, woke, socially aware people there. Let's tear this down. I'm like, all right, it was there, it happened. I still have to deal with the other million things and, and have to juggle and negotiate my relationship with these other million things that are equally as problematic. Well, sure, take down that statue. It's going to drastically change my life. I, that's, I find that that is a conversation I think that white America has to have with itself. The ones that want to keep the statues, the ones that want to take them down, the ones that want to keep the monuments, the ones that want to rename them. And I'm not sure how to guide on how to have that internal conversation any more than anyone else would be able to tell me how to have an intercommunal conversation with like fellow African Americans or fellow Jews. Uh, I was actually going to add, if I may, it's, it's kind of like, it's bizarre kind of when you sit over here in Israel and I'm putting my, 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 myself in the place of like my wife who, who was born here and, and, you know, she didn't learn much about America before she met me. You know, it, it seems strange to a point, um, you know, that the manifestation of, or one of the manifestations of, of the cultural change that's taking place right now in the United States is focused on monuments and statues, which, you know, it's almost in a uniquely American way. Like in America, this conversation would go to a place that's very, you know, on the surface first in terms of, you know, the media and, and what they're covering is, 
you know, monuments and statues are being taken down or monuments and statues are being, you know, there are groups of people who advocate for this statue to be removed or whatnot. And it's like, is this really the, the, you know, the most important thing for us to be talking about right now in terms of the struggle for the culture is, is this, you know, you know, it's just so, so it seems to me to be a very strange place. Uh, I'm not saying an, an, an unnecessary place, but it seems to be a strange place when there are real, you know, social issues that are affecting the communities right now not to say that you can't do both you can do both but the media likes to put a lot of focus on the statue conversation i think this is maybe indicative of those greater social issues because you have people that are trying to evoke change and people who want to dig in and keep those symbols of the system that needs to be changed i want to keep this confederate flag it's my history it's not really it's traitorous it's racist, and you just want to keep what? What is it that you need to keep it? What? What? What is that emotional? What is it that you're trying to keep? What is it that that's threatening? That if things change, you're going to have less. That if things get equal, you don't have like the the space of comfortability and power that you're used to. What is it that you're so? Why are you resisting the statue yeah. being taken down? I guarantee you didn't care about it all the rest of the time before people are taking it down. I think the struggle of keeping or taking down bombings is extremely indicative of the social issues. If we can't get past the symbols of the thing, how are we ever going to get to the actual changing and restructuring of the thing in the system itself? Right. I th- you know what I think? I think people are afraid that, you know, and again, I'm not talking about people who are actually racist, okay? I'm talking about kind of the normal person who's probably not individually racist as much as they're aware of it, okay? But, you know, the society has kind of always privileged them and, and there was this kind of talk about privilege that people just aren't aware of. And it's an uncomfortable conversation to have, you know, say, well, you're privileged and say, well, my life was hard, I was poor, etc. Um, yeah, but, you know, your skin color wasn't a part of that, right? Um I think people are afraid that the system is going to be turned on them. So if you, you know, it's one of these things where if you can convince people, uh, and I'm not putting this on you, of course, it's beyond one person, but, you know, if you can convince people, you know, the average white person in America that your life is not going to be, your position, your life is not going to be hurt by this, by raising up those who have been underprivileged or, or you know, left out, um, you know, it's kind of one of these things where people are just scared that they're going to lose the status and the opportunities and the position that they have, you know, and, and, you know, you said it's superficial, Benny, but that's really where it starts. And, and for the average person, the average person is, is not thinking about these things on a regular basis. You know, I can take our Israeli example here, Chase, and say, you know, part of the reason actually why I moved here, and, and I think maybe for you too, is to not have to be in the minority where we have to think about these things all the time. I wanted to be in a society where, where I'm the, you know, I'm the majority where I don't have to think about these things where, you know, I'm not offended by this statue or that plaque or this building named after that person because, because I am the majority here. And it's, it's a very weird thing coming from a place where I was uh, uh, um, maybe not a visible minority, but certainly a minority in, in my own experience in my head to come to a place where, where the table has been flipped in that regard. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point you brought up. Um, let's, let's take this. Um, you know, we've been talking about generally about America now. Let's take this into the Jewish sphere. Um, Wait, but can I can I add just one yeah, one last thing before that? I, I think I think there's a part of it like you you were just talking about how 
you know, people that are, you know, white, white Americans might want to be, uh, you know, in a place where they're able to affect the change. And I think that there's a lot of people who feel that they have something that they want to say, but we haven't added on top of this, the, the layer of like a cancel culture. Right. So there are people that may be saying in their own minds, I, I'm, I'm not a racist, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't harbor these feelings in my heart. And, and, you know, I, you know, I grew, I grew up in a time, maybe there are people that are like my father's age where they went through the 1960s and they got to a place where they're like, you know, I, I, you know, I see everybody as my equal or, you know, I've, I, you know, was a part or, you know, I, I marched together with or, or all the things that you hear people say, especially, especially if you grew up around Jews that went through that era of time. Um, but now you're in a place where people are afraid to even say what they want to say, because maybe if I don't say it exactly in the right way, I'll be fired from my job. Or maybe if I make a mistake and I write the wrong thing and now it's on Facebook or now it's on Twitter, everyone's going to read it and now I'm going to get, you know, now I'm going to get canceled. Or, you know, I don't know where the goalposts are this week, so maybe I shouldn't stand up. And I think that if that's the way that it really is, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this from my position here in, in Israel, but if that's the way that it really is for a lot of those people that feel that way, you know, it, it really puts them in a position where maybe some of them just say, you know, I, I don't want to bother being a part of this. Uh, you know, I, I, I agree with it. I support the sentiments of it, but I, I can't take the risk to to say what I think. Um, and maybe there's even those who say, you know, OK, if if I, I didn't think I was a racist, but if they're going to call me a racist, shit, I'll be a racist. You know, now I guess I'm a racist. Uh, and maybe maybe it's flipping people the opposite way. You know, I, I shared um, earlier this week, I shared a, a funny clip from Seinfeld. Um, on my uh, Facebook post, and it was uh, Kramer wanted to. Uh, are you a Seinfeld person, Chase? Did, did you grow up watching Seinfeld? I am not a Seinfeld. No, absolutely not. Should have. <laughs> anyway, this is the worst. Not. This is what he's going through right now. Is I hate this too. It's like when somebody throws out a movie reference. Oh, like, did on. you see it's that thing Seinfeld. in that movie? He's like, no. Okay, so Kramer, Kramer is the nonconformist character of the show. Oh no, I'm I'm aware of the character. Okay, just making sure, just making sure. But we also have we might have <laughs> listeners who are not over thirty who didn't grow up with Seinfeld. Um, so Kramer, the nonconformist, wants to march in an I, think, I believe it was an AIDS march, and he wants to go and support the cause uh, and and do the walk. And they say, put on a ribbon. He said, I want to put on a ribbon. Um, and and he ends up getting beaten up by all these people who are saying, you know, you either support our cause the way we tell you to support our cause or, or we're physically going to harm you and cancel you. And, and a huge debate erupted in the feed. Um, I'm not going to get into it, but you know, kind of, you know, kind of what Benny was saying is, is, you know, this is a tough spot for people who want to voice an opinion. They want to be supportive. They want to be sympathetic, but maybe not the way the most extreme voices are telling them they have to be or maybe not the way social media and and you know they're at risk of the cancel culture that we're seeing uh i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that i don't necessarily think that cancel culture is the boogeyman it's perceived to be the same way that i don't think that the me too two movement was the boogeyman that it was like oh no now everything is going to happen I feel like people who actually have a thing to say, and it's a good thing to say, will say it and will find a way to say it. Um, if someone's afraid to say a thing, and they don't, then I think they need to reevaluate what was the value of the thing they were trying to say. Because if it was something, or is something that is adding to the dialogue, 
and is constructive, then you find a way to say it. When there's something that someone really wants to say, they will say it. They will find a way. I don't believe in uh, it flipping people. It's just people who were just censoring themselves because they knew that their views were terrible. And so now they just had an excuse. Oh, they made it. It's like, uh, it's like saying, I, I don't support Jews because a Jew was mean to me once. <laughs> like, okay, you met one person. Uh, or that I, 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 I don't support um, immigrants because this one experience. Either, and I, I was with the cause, but now this, I'm not for the cause anymore. Like, how are you shifting your entire moral outlook of a concept based on your interactions with a person? That's like me saying, oh, I used to be against rape, but this, my female classmate is terrible. So, you know what? I don't care if rape happens. What? It's quite an example. <laughs> <laughs> what? So... That works the same way with any other, there's no one that's going to be flipped that wasn't really engaged or cared about that issue in the first place. Because if it's, we're, you're not discussing people, you're discussing concepts of humanity and social justice. And your moral core and concept is either on or it's off. And there's nothing that anyone's going to do that's going to throw you off of that. Yeah, but look, let's, let's say philosophically speaking, my- and I'm going to go talk in the abstract here for a second because, you know, I'm taking this to a philosophical place. Let's say that the issue is, I'm going to throw out a super, super neutral, nobody cares about it issue, okay? Let's say the issue is abortion, okay? And let's say that in... in super neutral. Super neutral. Uh, honestly, no one's argued about it in about a year between between Corona <laughs> and uh, and now what's happening. Yeah. I think people are like, oh, you should definitely abort now. <laughs> gun, gun rights and abortion. Th- yeah. Those are the safe issues to talk about. Right? No, but in a, for real, though, let, let's say like in 50 years time, okay? Abortion is looked at, uh, I don't think this is what's going to happen, but let's say that the right has its way and abortion is outlawed and, and, and somehow in the culture, everybody gets on board with this that, you know, we just shouldn't be doing this anymore. That was a thing. It, it's, it's bad. Or, or, you know what, I'll even go further. Let's, let's use something that's not so polarizing. Meat, okay, the eating of meat. Let's say that science develops just like they're doing now ways to create uh, artificial yet authentic meat. Not like, you know, fake beef or whatever, but like, you know, made in a lab meat, okay? And then we all as a culture and as a society and as a civilization look at the killing of animals as something that's completely and totally cruel and ridiculous and we can't believe how we ever did that as a, as a culture, as a society. And that if you are somebody that once did that 50 years ago, you are an awful human being, criminal, person and uh and we can't we can't let you be on tv anymore it's like well wait a second that's what we did then like and again i'm not saying that eating meat is racism i'm not even trying to bring this to a racist place i'm saying just the 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 concept philosophically of canceling somebody for something that they once did or said that at that time in the culture was socially acceptable so is there a difference when you know we're talking about race and we're talking about discrimination or things of that nature or is it that this is now the world that we're that we're living in when you have increased polarization in 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 the political zeitgeist that you know it's it's very binary it's one way or the other we're now just going to say we're tribal this is how we are you know if you if you act this way you're you know you're with us or you're not 
And, and is that the world that we're now going to move into? And is this the catalyst towards that? Uh, we're definitely becoming more and more polarized on literally everything. Um, I'd say the difference of your example is what I mentioned uh, before, where there are cases of judging, of taking our societal values and projecting them backwards on people. Most times, that doesn't happen. Uh, an example of uh, doing that in the benign way is like if we judged our parents because we you know, rode around the back of station wagons with no seatbelts. That's something that society. Oh, yeah, we did. That was fun. Inherently evil or morally, or morally reprehensible. Now, if we were judging them morally, oh, that was a terrible thing to do, that is ahistorical. Right? Most things that uh, people are revisiting and reevaluating historical figures on aren't things that are that benign. There are things that are consistently on a moral scale that people, there are people that know better and people that don't know better and people that talk about it. Um, I think that's what I have on that. So let's, uh, what's, what's let's, happening let's, yeah, is sorry. not unfairly judging people through our lens. Let, let's use this as a, a jumping off point and, um, you know, let, let's get into the, the Jewish aspect of this. Uh, we are after called juanced and not nuanced. Um, so let's go from, from, from the more general to the more specific. Um, a lot of people in the American Jewish community, um, the more conservative, small C conservative they are, and certainly Israelis as they're watching this, as they're, and Israelis are following this very closely without a lot of the nuanced understanding, um, something comes up oftentimes in that the Black Lives Matter movement is anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, and maybe even anti-Semitic. And so we support the cause of equality and ending racism, but we cannot get in line with anything this movement has to do. This is something I'm, I see in the, in the Jewish news, in the Israeli news. I hear it from a lot of people. Um, first of all, is that true? And second of all, should it matter? One, not true. To, shouldn't matter. <laughs> but <laughs> I guess to um, go into more detail, uh, personally, I find it uh, a little ridiculous, as I've said in several different places, that as an Orthodox Jew, I'm expected to show up to Orthodox Jewish spaces, to show up for Team Orthodox Jew, to show up for Jews in Judaism, despite the racism I've encountered, the racist strains in certain communities or trains of thought. So I'm not sure why there's this uh, inherent demand for pure ideological cohesion to be able to stand behind Black Lives Matter. Um, I had a second thing that just escaped my head. If you could repeat the question, I could maybe get back to it. Well, so you, you answered why it shouldn't matter, right? If there is an anti-Semitic or an anti-Israel strain or voice or even element within this movement, um, but is it? I, I think, um, you know, is that a voice and is it a strong voice within the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, so when it comes to that, it's a complete lack of nuance and conflating every movement that uses the phrase Black Lives Matter as being the same thing. And 
as Black Lives Matter itself being an organization and not a movement. Um, that's like saying I, that's like a, a group of Asians, each one saying, no, I'm Korean, I'm Japanese, I'm Vietnamese. And some say, oh, I can't hang, I can't hang out with them because they're all Chinese. Like, well, no, we're, we're all Asian. We might resemble each other a little bit, but we have distinct different things that we just happen to be under this larger umbrella. And you're confusing, you're, you're not associating with all of us because you're confusing us with something else that's completely different, but also under our umbrella. So, so unconfuse um, us, please. All right. So a large amount of the take that Black Lives Matter is, you know, anti-Semitic or anti-Israel uh, is actually not about Black Lives Matter. The rhetoric will say, oh, you know, Black Lives Matter platform in 2016, criticizing Israel, et cetera, et cetera. Black oh, hang Lives on. Matter go, ba- go back and explain that um, just because that's what a lot of people are referencing. So let's go back and talk about that for a second. Yeah. So in 2016, the Movement for Black Lives, which is sort of an umbrella group of other Black Lives Matter-affiliated organizations and collectives and enclaves, uh, produced a platform, uh, a uh, 40-bullet-point sort of platform. One of the bullet points was calling on America to uh, remove itself from uh, all international conflicts that it was involved in. And a footnote of uh, that bullet point of the larger platform mentioned Israel as an example. We're, we're looking um, at this now on our screen. That's, where that, yeah. that's where that comes from. Uh, there's people saying, oh, Israel was the only country mentioned in the manifesto. And there's several countries mentioned up and down in several bullet points across the entire platform. Secondarily, Black Lives Matter has its own platform that is separate from that completely. Black Lives Matter is its own sort of organization that is affiliated with the movement of, a uh, movement for Black Lives is its own organization affiliated with the movement of uh, Black Lives Matter. But Black Lives Matter never had that uh, platform or said anything like that. Um, are, are, people, are people in Black Lives Matter, not the, not the organization, but the movement, even aware of this? Yeah. This is a constant uh, talking point that gets refuted all the time. It's like, no, this is moving for Black Lives. No, I'm not talking about within the Jewish world. I, I'm, forget the Jewish world for a second. No, no, I'm talking within, I'm talking within Black Lives Matter okay. themselves. Please expand. And people with the organization. Um, secondarily, this is sort of an offshoot of the tepid response to Black Lives Matter when it first arose during Ferguson uh, by mainstream Jewish organizations. When it first uh, entered the sphere, Jews largely were not there. The groups that were there were pro-Palestinian groups and Palestinian groups. And so it's really just uh, the pro-Palestinian rhetoric is really just you know, a professional courtesy of support back to the people that showed up when Black Lives Matter first showed up. Jews, the first Jews that uh, showed up at Black Lives Matter were not organizational, they were individuals, and they were, um, again, also pro-Palestinian causes. Then afterwards, organizations joined in, and they were also pro-Palestinian causes. The Zionist pro-Israel organizations and individuals dragged their feet in support, said, oh, this isn't a thing, all lives matter, we shouldn't pay attention. And once it's not a groundswell, there was no more room at the table 
And that was sort of used to excuse, oh, we're not joining because it's anti-Israel. Well, he didn't join in the first place. <laughs> that's why it's... So, so that's why it's so, the, so a, just to clarify uh, here... Pro-Palestinian sort of base. Just, just to clarify here, are you're, what you're saying is that the reason that this this paragraph and we're looking at it and it's first of all it's completely inaccurate factually but it parrots the you know the anti-israel movement i don't even like calling it a pro-palestinian movement because it's just more anti-israel than anything um i'm not going to read it here but people we, we can put up the link on the on the show notes um and, and people can read it for themselves you're saying that it was a courtesy to the the let's call it pro-palestinian anti-israel movement that showed up um are is the average i don't know if you can call it the the black activist right the african american activist who's fighting for african american rights in america do they even care about israel no um actually i remember personally when that uh, platform came out uh, me and some friends of mine were baffled as to why um anyone affiliated with black lives matter was in wading into the murky waters of international social politics when there's enough things in our backyard to like deal with. Right. That's not really on the average person's mind, the average African-American's mind, not here at all. But what's interesting is that paragraph is written by Rachel jo- Gilmer, who is black and Jewish. Um, black Lives Matter, one of the founders, Lee Garza, also black and Jewish. And I think... If we want to talk about that, I think a problem, it's it sort of presented in general that Jews of color uh, in America, particularly black Jews, who have like sort of ambivalent feelings about Israel, aren't like really Jews and don't really care about Israel. The problem isn't that black Jews in the diaspora don't care about Israel. The problem is so many black Jews have been so thoroughly disenfranchised from racism in the Jewish community that they're offered no stake in its future or in the ongoing safety of Israel. Interesting. That's really interesting. So Cause, cause you hear a lot of when things are going terrible in America, it's like, oh, at least we have Israel. Who's the we that has Israel? Because some of us can't get off the plane. Wow. Some yeah. of us sit in interrogation rooms for eight or nine or ten hours. And that's something that's overlooked here. Um, you know, because it, it's funny. When we read uh, Israeli newspapers, uh, both in Hebrew and in English, the, f- the second thing that comes out of, of, you know, they came out of Ferguson, that comes out now, is everything has to have a Jewish angle, right? So it's, you know, okay, so this is anti-Israel. They're saying something anti-Semitic. They're saying something anti-Israel. And so the picture that gets painted in people's minds here, uh, the perception that's painted by um, Israelis and who, who, who by and large do follow global events, but through an Israeli media lens. But also I think the more, the more small C conservative Jew you are in America, you're also reading more Jewish media. And everything has to have a Jewish angle. I get it, right? You know, the forward doesn't report the news like, like, uh, you know, the forward or JTA. They don't report the news like the New York Times. They have to have a Jewish angle on it. Otherwise, there's no point. And so what's the Jewish angle? Oh, Black Lives Matter is anti-Zionist. It's anti-Israel. Or, you know, there was a, an element within it that's, that's even fully anti-Semitic. And so that paints this conception that this whole thing is anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. And what you're saying is it's really not true. Do you see do you see elements of, of Jewish racism towards the black community in, in, in going in that direction? How do you mean? I mean Jewish people didn't show up I, I'm just going you know, trying to create a theory here. 
Jewish people didn't show up in Ferguson as, as quickly as, as the Palestinians showed up in Ferguson. They weren't there. It created a, you know, a sort of a, a paradigm that, that you know, came into fruition with this uh, you know, mention of the Palestinians in many, many places in this document. Um, Jews, when they were looking for a Jewish angle into the story, you know, went to the place of this document and how it singled out Israel, blah, blah, blah. Um, is there something where this is the fruition of that same sort of a, uh, a racist narrative that we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation of Jews and how they see or how some Jews see uh, see the black community? Yeah, I would definitely say that. Well, we don't have to worry about that problem over there, so we're not going to show up. Well, that problem over there, that affects me. Right. I, I'm also Jewish. I'd like to not get shot randomly when you're getting pulled over for the 4,000th time walking down the street just here in New City. And sort of that, you know, that reaction uh, from the Jewish community uh, to, like, the platform for Black Lives, like, wait, so you're not going to get behind this movement, this organization that is focused on me being able to be alive in this country that we live in based on their policies on a country that we don't. This, this, is, a, this is the rule breaker for you. Like, there are 40 other bullet points in that platform alone that would make you know, life safe. At, but no, because Israel, I don't live in Israel. You don't, you don't live in Israel. We're living right here. We're, this is focusing on fixing what's in our backyard right here. And again, I show up for tons of Jewish things, like constant racism. This is this. Their policies aren't even affecting. It's not even affecting Israel. Are they like making policy that is now affecting Israel? So why is this your? This is your lie. Right. Look, I, I think for so me, it's quite I think for me, and in, in, in this particular place, I'll speak only for myself. Um, you know, when I was reading this document, there were many, many things that I could say. Okay, well, if I was looking at this through a different, you know, through the political lens of the Jewish community in the most classic sense, I don't like how it's talking about, you know. Israel's treatment of the Palestinians in this way or the other. But as an Israeli who lives here, I can say that there are many things that this is saying which are, you know, based in certain facts that we can't deny and that are very uncomfortable for people that are engaging in a very, you know, all the time Hasbara Israel could do no harm sort of a way. And then I get to a certain paragraph that I'm reading, which is, it says, the U.S. justifies and advances the global war on terror via via its alliance with Israel and is complicit in the genocide taking place against the Palestinian people. And, and that's kind of where I, like, I stopped. And I was like, genocide? Wait a second, wait a second. And that's where, and that's where, and that's where this lost me. Like, I, I, I'm not going to say I was on board with everything else, but the second the word genocide, with all of that weight for, for, for me as a Jew, was introduced into this document, A, it made me not see the people who wrote it as serious individuals that understand what's going on here from a personal perspective and, that, and, that, and understand the nuance of the situation. And B, just like you're saying that as, you know, as a person of color, you can understand kind of just in a very, uh, you know, natural sense, hard to explain what a racist is. I look at that and I say, wait a second, they threw out the word genocide. There's there's some anti-Semitism going on here. Like that's not that's a word that's deliberately used. It's not something that's accidental. It has a it has a certain meaning. And for me personally, when I see that, you know, I live here. I, I if we wanted to commit a genocide, I, I know, you know, there's 150 tanks parked like, you know, 15 minutes from here. We could roll those through and commit a genocide in about, 
you know, 48 hours if we wanted Nobody's to. Nobody's committing genocide. Nobody's committing genocide. genocide. It's but, ridiculous. But, but no, I mean, back to Chase's point, he's saying, A, this organization does not represent the movement. Of course. And B, what was your other take on this? I said, you're, No, that it shouldn't matter. Uh, that it shouldn't matter. That it shouldn't matter. Look, I mean, it takes a very nuanced place to come and say, I'll look at 30 of the 40 points and I can get on board with them. But for, for the average person, it's very hard. It takes a lot of fortitude to say, I'm going to forgive them this thing that really hurts me and could lead to anti-Semitism, and I'm going to get on board with their other points. That, that It's really something hard to do. Uh, but from my understanding, they've removed this, haven't also, they? I, do want to, I, I also do want to point out, uh, since uh, uh, your point, a lot of other people's points, were sort of the reaction to genocide being used or apartheid and somewhere else. But there is room to be made for that argument according to the United Nations definition of what genocide is, in which case both Israel and the United States would fall under that definition. Of committing genocide? So if we're genocide, uh, according to UN definition... Actually, let me see if I can pull it up. Go for it. Uh, hmm. I'll say it. Convention, Prevention, and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide uh, into January 12, 1951, there are some pieces in Article 1 and 2 under bullet points where killing isn't necessarily the only way a country can qualify as being genocidal. It can also be force, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, Causing serious bodily and mental harm to members. None of that's happening here. B can B can be debated. B can be debated. In, in, in that case, right? There's there's this, they have more wiggle room if genocide isn't solely meaning killing, mm. which according to this definition it doesn't. Well, that seems to be a really fine line they're trying to walk. I mean, like kind of like you said at the beginning, why are they even getting into this? Exactly. Okay. Um, so maybe we'll end on a kind of a lighter note here. You mean genocide is not a light note? <laughs> genocide is as light a note as you could end on. You say a lighter note? So, uh, he <laughs> did. I think he said that lighter note, lighter note. Um, so yeah, let's end with genocide. All right. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, you, are you working on, I know you've written a few books. Uh, what, what are some of the books you've written? Um, so there is uh, my first one from about eight years ago, a uh, sort of memoir-esque kind of piece, a collection of social essays, Thoughts from a Unicorn, um, 100% black, 100% Jewish, 0% safe, which is fun because when I tell people that title, they're like, oh, yeah, that's true. You're not safe anywhere. And I'm like, well, I, I guess that could be true, but I meant that I was the thing that wasn't safe for you. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Their own. What does that mean? Uh, uh, because I have a an unapologetic take on the topics that I want to approach and how I choose to approach them. I'm the unsafe thing. Um, there's a Haggadah out there. It's really illustrated and all that. Good times. Much fun. You're also and, an illustrator, uh, my right? most recent, which is... Uh, you're, you're also an illustrator. Huh? You're also an artist, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so the Haggadah, that's all that art. I get to uh, 
just dump it right there. It looks pretty. You've also done some and very powerful artwork. Is, You've also done some very powerful artwork um, in response to to what's happened recently with the the racial issues. I have. That was very cathartic. <laughs> sort of uh, worked through that. Um, and my piece, new pieces pieces are rattling out or coming down the pipe soon. Um, and lastly, uh, my novel Ariel Sampson, Freelance Rabbi. In my autobiographical-ish, the events that have happened in it are true. The reactions the characters have aren't necessarily. And no, I am not secretly the main character. <laughs> are all these available on Amazon? These are all available on Amazon. They're all up there. When do you think? Uh, when do you think you're going to get back to, or the world's going to get back to a place where we're able to go out, travel, speak, not on Zoom? Uh... I mean, I mean, uh, maybe say it a different way. America, not so much. No. <laughs> no, we're with you. We're with you. The the rates here have uh, spiked back up in, in a very disturbing way as well. If we once were in a good place, we're kind of more yeah. more in more in the boat that uh, that you guys are in as well. I'll be perfectly honest. I'm most concerned that they're going to shut down my CrossFit again. That was a dark time in my life. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We we were we were meeting last night, and he comes up to me, and he's like. They can do anything, man. They can do literally anything. They can put us in total lockdown. They can tell me that I, you know, can't leave my house. As long as I can keep going to CrossFit, I'm going to be okay. I'm totally it's okay. It's the one thing keeping me sane in all of this. Priorities, priorities. Exactly. Everyone's got them. <laughs> so you're you're very prolific on social media. You are um, a speaker. We encourage uh, our listeners, those who are involved in any kind of organizations that invite speakers to uh, invite you. How can people find you? How can people follow you um if you want to give people the, the those who are not familiar with you how can they find you and follow you on on social media uh you could head over to my website manishtana.net and find things there uh at manishtana on twitter manishtana on facebook uh, at the real manishtana on instagram um i think those are all my my social media why did you choose the the pen name Manishtana? Um, one Pesach is my favorite holiday. Uh, not to get ready for, just once it's there. <laughs> it's my favorite. And um, uh, I write and speak about, you know, it's essentially a play on the Manishtana question. Like, what makes this night so different from any other night? What makes this Jew so different from any other Jew? So, Manishtana. You're certainly better dressed than most other Jews, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, definitely. This is the last time I wear this stupid Hawaiian shirt I like it. video. I think it's a good vibe. <laughs> it is a good vibe, but that's a better vibe. <laughs> You're gonna start wearing a white three piece suit to, I should. to the podcast? In Israel. You can't pull it off like him. No, I can't pull it off like him. There's no way. By the way, I I did wear a white three piece tux to my wedding. You were there. I confirm. I think he did I, I, I think pictures. I pulled it off. Oh, you did. You looked good. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, so this has been, uh, intense. This has been, uh, fascinating, um, interesting and enjoyable. Uh, and any other kind of, uh, superlatives that we can, uh, attach to this conversation. Uh, Rabbi Shesh Rishon Manishtana, we appreciate, uh, your time and we appreciate, um, we appreciate this conversation we had tonight and, uh, we invite our listeners and, uh, we hope to continue to be in touch. We invite our listeners to uh, join us next time.
on uh, Juanced. Absolutely. Take care of yourself, man. Be well and be safe. Take it easy. This episode of Juanced was recorded in Rehovot, Israel. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.